0: Welcome back to Trope Stories, a show about photographers, creatives, dreamers, makers, entrepreneurs, and their personal journeys. I'm Terry Mayday, and on today's show is Aaron Saragal. Aaron is a Londoner, born and raised with roots in Istanbul, Turkey, and a passion for Japan. Growing up in a working class South London council estate from an immigrant background in a multicultural city, exposed Aaron to a myriad of different cultures an outsider accepted into the melting pot that is the great city of London. Aaron never lost his connection to Turkey. Growing up bilingual and visiting family in Istanbul opened him up to a whole new world. His childhood was filled with a juxtaposition of cultures, languages, religions, and lifestyles that helped shape Aaron into the person he would become. After taking pictures with his phone on a trip to Japan, he had found his calling. Upon returning to London, he bought his first camera and taught himself, pursuing the art of photography and videography on the streets of London, followed by more trips to Japan and Istanbul. Photography can be difficult to get into on a small budget, but through perseverance, Aaron was able to break through barriers and forge a career path. Aaron specializes in travel, lifestyle, and city photography, the world as he perceives it through his eyes. He is attracted to visual storytelling and weaving a narrative through his art using colors, light, and shadow to a impact. His photographs have gained international attention from inclusion in galleries to working with major global brands including Fujifilm, Samsung, Microsoft, Adobe, and Hilton. While in Japan, Aaron picked up an appreciation for what the Japanese called Kaizen, a process of continuous improvement. Aaron continues to strive towards perfecting his art. This is his story. Hey Aaron, how are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks
1: for having me feeling great and um, happy to be here.
0: It's good to see you, man. And we are here to celebrate the launch of across Japan. Congratulations. First question. How did it feel just receiving the book?
1: Yeah, it was, um, quite a surreal moment actually, because, um, I started the photography about five, six years ago from scratch, and i would never really taken any photo or done anything creative before that. So, you know, like the book kind of serves as almost like proof of what I'm doing is right. And um, I don't know, it's a really surreal moment because, we're, you know, you're working on the book for months on end and you're mm-hmm. creating it, you're changing it, you're editing it, but um, it's not really real until you hold it in your hand. And it's the physical book and you can see those photos in hand and you can share, you know, share them with your family, share them with your friends. So, um, it was a, yeah, really proud moment already for me. No kidding. What about your mom and dad and
0: your family? I mean, they've seen your career growing steadily mm, and quickly, mm. I might add, and they've, you know, they've, they've, they've seen your feed, but a digital experience is different than, you know, a, a tangible physical experience with a book. How
1: did your family react to the book? They were really excited to see it because it's quite strange. So, so my father came here from Turkey and he came with what, about three pounds in his pocket. And from my mom's side of the family, like my grandfather, he worked in the coal mines up in North. So um, they, we don't really have anyone artistic in the family. We don't really know any like artists or photographers. So while Mm. they were always very supportive, and they've always been supportive of everything I do, I don't think they quite understood what I was doing. And the book, like when they saw the book, it kind of, for them, acts as proof, or they can kind of really see what I've been putting my work and time into. So yeah, same for them as it was for me, a really proud moment, and they were really excited to see it. And secondly, they've never been to Japan, so it also serves as a good way for them to see the country since they've never been
0: very cool yes they got to traverse the country as as you did through (laughs) through your pictures and your stories we have a question from instagram aaron how did you find shooting in japan any plans to
1: revisit so yeah for me shooting in japan is where i began photography and it's actually where i feel most comfortable shooting so i love shooting Mm. in tokyo in busy cities so for me like tokyo is almost home when it comes to photography and it's definitely somewhere where I'm looking to revisit. So in the near future, I'm hoping to go to the very northern tip of uh, Hokkaido, which is in the north of Japan, and do a trip all the way down to Okinawa, which is an island in the south. Amazing.
0: Are you, You're more comfortable in Japan than you are in London?
1: Ah, uh, it's, uh, it's a good question. It's like, um obviously when you're traveling, you're always seeing new things, so it's more exciting. So in my mind, right. je- always with Japan, I have that level of excitement. So when I go there, the, you're like an explorer, you know, you're going there, you seeing new things every single day, new people, new cultures. So it's very different. Whereas in London, obviously, I see the city every single day. So one way or another, you become very familiar with the place and it becomes a bit less interesting. That's true. You do, you do get used to
0: it. When you're traveling, every, everything feels new and exciting. And there's so many vantage point day, <laughs> night, etc. cetera. Um, another question from Instagram. What about Japan made you choose to center your first book around it?
1: Mainly because that's like where I spend the most amount of my time. So my trip mm-hmm. to Japan, I, I tend to go for two to three months at a time rather than doing short trips there. And I also prefer really focusing on a single country and learning about its culture and its people rather than going to multiple different countries and getting a surface level uh, understanding of the place and the people. So with Japan, it kind of just made sense because I've been there so many times already, I'd already had lots of photos from Japan. So when the idea of the book came along, it was just a matter of going back there and really just taking more shots from more different locations. So it was just one of those things which made sense at the time.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm curious, Aaron, a lot of people use photography as an outlet. Perhaps they have traditional jobs. Mm -hmm. You are pursuing it as a career, clearly. And as a professional photographer and filmmaker, I'm curious what your hobbies or interests are outside of your creative pursuits.
1: So my major hobby outside of photography is football or soccer to those in the the States. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, so once I left uni, I actually started a Turkish football platform and we were serving news and content from Turkey to an English speaking audience. So that was like my first job out of uni, and that's again one of my passions. And I don't know, with me, I really just when it comes to working and stuff, it has to be something something I really believe in, and something I really enjoy. So with football being a massive passion of mine, I started that platform. And afterwards, as photography became more and more my you know like my true love, almost like the thing I most love doing. I switched over from the football side of things to more and more into photography. But I still follow football very closely. So that's always there.
0: You may call it football, we call it soccer. Mm. I'm super familiar with the game. I'm I'm a big, big fan. We followed our daughter's journey, and she started as a little girl, competitive through, you know, middle school, grade school, high school, and played at university one incredible amount of championships and personal awards and the trajectory actually that the game gave her in terms of finding her career path now because she had a lot of injuries when she played it gave her a new sense of being in tune with her body and understanding how her body works and how health and nutrition and all of it comes together so now she's getting her doctorate in occupational therapy which was really born out of the game i mean did the game give you any of those treasures in, in your life?
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, so like lots of my friends in Turkey, they are also supporters of Galatasaray, which is the team I support. And mm. just through like, uh, again, through that kind of passion, you meet lots of new people. Also, when I was younger, I played football like for at Sunday league level, with a Chelsea football club here. So uh, again, you kind of learn so much through sports, be it the perseverance, just like character, like. Character traits, working hard, perseverance, always looking after yourself, and uh, just, you know, always trying hard nonstop and things like that. So I think there definitely is always a merit to uh, pursuing sports in life, and it's something I always look to do, even now in photography.
0: Did you play the game?
1: Yeah, so I played um, like almost at a very, very amateur level up until around secondary school. So I would have been about 13, 14 here, and that's when I stopped. Because back then, it was, again, like my family doing sports and stuff isn't really um, the way to go. They much they value academic subjects a lot more. So mm. I was kind of, uh, I would say pushed, but encouraged to get more and more into the acad- academic side of things. So I studied business management and marketing, and I went on to study both of those subjects in university as well.
0: I know you've created some content and stories in, in the game of football. Did playing the game help you understand and be able to relate to the athletes. So you understand kind of the stories to tell when you're working in that space.
1: Oh yeah. A hundred percent because it's, it's one of those things where when we watch football or sports in general, we're seeing the very, like the cream of the crop that, you know, that 0.1% of athletes who actually made it. So, right. so much of what makes a footballer is kind of what goes on at home injuries throughout their young, you know, their young life. And, um, Kind of just almost empathizing with that side of things and understanding how tough it is on photo- on um, footballers, with um again with nutrition, staying fit all the time, the uh, mental pressures also of um, being a professional athlete. So kind of just knowing about that side, even from a very low end and um like not at a professional level, but just having some knowledge of it does help me connect with when I'm doing even photography projects or video projects with footballers or football clubs that really does come into play and really does help out.
0: That's very cool. Do you think that with photography and filmmaking, do you think that the only way to succeed in this, you know, sometimes elusive creative pursuit is the only way to be successful to just to be all in?
1: Yeah. You know, that's a question I've been asking myself over this last year because I was very much working full time on the sports site and the football side of things, whereas photography was a hobby. But over the last year, maybe eighteen months, as photography has become more and more of—I um, don't know, like my main job—I've been earning more and more and doing more and more projects. I've gone to the point where I kind of have to go full time and commit all of my energy into photography, and also because I. I don't know, like out of the two subjects, I do prefer photography. I prefer making film and making art. So it's something where I do feel in order to really excel and push myself to that next step, I will have to go 100%. And over the last 12 months, I have done that. So I work working less and less on the sports side of things and really focusing on my photography, improving myself, improving my own art and learning new skills as well. So yeah, I think with all these things, it does come to a point where if you if you really want to excel and maybe master is too big of a word, but if you really want to learn about a subject, you have to be all in. And you can't be playing both sides and, you know, like half your time on one job and half your time on another. With uh, something like photography, I feel like I have to be all in. Like you said, it takes up pretty much all of my day as it is. So I'm going out, walking endlessly all day. I come back, I edit, and then the next day I repeat it. So there really isn't that much time to be doing other work or committing time to other projects.
0: Well said. We're talking to you from Chicago. You're in South London, the, the same neighborhood you grew up in, right? Yes, yes. And and tell me about South London. How is it now and how has it changed in the last 20 years?
1: Well, so I grew up here in Battersea, which is um, a small like area in South London. And um, mm. growing up, it was pretty rough place so it was one of the uh so basically i grew up on an estate and this kind of these kind of areas for example if i was to uh call a taxi they may not come or if i was in the taxi and i wanted to go to Battersea some of them would just flat out refuse to go so Battersea was like that before but these days it's completely changed and it's been completely gentrified and there's million pound apartments going up yeah businesses are changing, the shops are changing, the people are changing. But I also do feel, along with that, the area does lose its character somewhat. So with all the new buildings, you're kind of losing the uh, the grittiness of the area and the character. And I much prefer shooting those kind of scenes, whereas with all these modern apartments it's all like sleek metals and glass buildings. I don't really find it that interesting.
0: You mentioned your dad is from Turkey, right? Yes, that's right. Were you able to spend time there as a kid? I mean, have you been back and forth to Turkey?
1: Yeah, so ooh, throughout my childhood, I will spend multiple months in Istanbul, and I will go there every single summer. So my father's family, they're from a small island just off Istanbul, and you get there by ferry. And um, the life there resembles more of a village style life and not really a city life. So there's not even cars on this island. It's just um, horse carriages. You just walk around and just growing up, it was like one gigantic playground. And when you compare that to what I had in London, it was so different because in London, where I was growing up, you know, after dark, sometimes you didn't really want to go out and about. And uh, you had to be really careful. Whereas in um, Istanbul, where I was on the island, it was completely different. It was full freedom. Just stay out as long as I want, roam around the wow. island, go in the water, come out, you know. anything really so that definitely played a large role when I was growing up
0: it sounds like that was a formative experience Mm. I mean it sounds like maybe it was you know creative exploration I mean Mm. no no phones just no
1: cars even right yeah yeah exactly I think yeah I think you're right so it's almost where I got my sense of exploration from because in London I didn't really go out and just venture into different places whereas when I was there Mm -hmm. I was just free to roam I could Go to any area in the, on the island, you know, just walk around whenever I felt like it. So yeah, I'm definitely very lucky in that respect, and even in the respect when, when you know, talking about uh, gratitude and feel, what, feeling lucky, I just feel like um, with how my parents grew up and their backgrounds, for mm-hmm. me at the moment, I'm just extremely fortunate to be able to pursue photography, and I almost feel like. I'm almost incumbent to follow a path which I really want to because they weren't able to and they very much understand that so I'm always grateful to them and yeah I just feel extremely lucky about my situation and uh, my place.
0: It's very cool I've heard you say before that photography found me what what do you mean by that?
1: So this is um it's really strange actually because as I said earlier when I first went to Japan I had never taken a photo I was not even interested remotely in photography or in the video. So the only reason I picked up a camera before going to Japan for the first time was because I felt that the camera on my phone wasn't that good. And, um, since I was going so far, I wanted to share some snaps with my family and it really, you know, there were, there really wasn't that much thought put into it. It was just the uh, on the spare of the moment thing. I picked up a point and shoot camera headed out to Japan and, um, while I was out there, just uh, I really enjoyed shooting people, capturing the architecture. And also when I was bringing it back home, I was able to tell my story through the shots and through the photos I was, show- I was showing my family. So I'm at a stage now where pretty much everything I do is photography. Most of my friends are in the photography world. So I just sit there and sometimes think if photography didn't find me, if I didn't get into photography, what would I be doing right now? Like. It's hard to even imagine.
0: It is. I mean, it is a short journey for you so far, four or five Mm -hmm. years. Yeah. How, how has photography changed who you are or
1: or how you view the world? Yeah. So when I was growing up, so especially here in London, I didn't really venture into the city much. I didn't even know central London at all. Mm. And really, I wasn't that much of an outgoing person. I'll spend most of my days at home. I'll be playing video games and stuff like that. Whereas when I got into photography, it was like a real incentive to get out there and explore the city, meet new people, make new friends. So it's pretty, so weird. So it kind of goes back to where I was saying photography found me because everything I do now is revolving photography. And to think that wouldn't have been in my life had I not gone to Japan. I don't know, it's, uh, it's a really hard one to get my mind around.
0: I've got a question from Instagram here, Aaron. How did you develop your style and what made you say, this is how I want to shoot?
1: Yeah, that's a real tough question because for me, I always like to feel my style is constantly evolving. Like I never want to put myself into a box of saying, I only shoot street or I only shoot architecture. Mm. I kind of just go where my passion leads me. So I don't know, like at the moment, I'm really enjoying street. But it wasn't ever something where I consciously thought, I'm going to go and do this. I just kind of fell into it. Previously, I was shooting more architectural stuff. So I'd go around London and I'll shoot the landmarks or I'd find cool architectural locations, get a wide-angle lens and shoot those. Whereas in the last year or two, I've really made a focus on, uh, as I said earlier, do more street photography and just tell more stories. Because I feel with art in general, the main thing I want to do and the things I like in art Uh, is art which uh, tells stories or conveys some sort of emotion. So I kind of want to do more with, I want to do more and more of that in my own photography and just room the shots I'm taking, just tell more stories and um, yeah, convey just more emotions and messages through them.
0: And I think that's natural not to want to be labeled as, as you know, one thing, right? Because I think as people we're always evolving hopefully Mm -hmm. and, and through that, our interests are evolving, maybe our aesthetic is evolving, our post-process is evolving, our lens choices are changing, and through all that, our stories are changing. So it's not like you're going to say, oh, I love shooting people in alleys, or I love being an architectural photographer, it's you're able to share different
1: stories on different days. Yeah, exactly, because um, also I I always feel like your location plays a major role in the type of photography you do. So let's say, for example, I'm out in, um, I don't know, in France, near the Alps, I'll be shooting landscapes all the time because the landscapes are just stunning. Whereas in here in London, you can't really do that. So always your environment forms you. And being in London and always traveling to large cities around the world, street photography was pretty much a natural fit. And also, as I really enjoyed just walking around cities randomly, again, street photography is the natural fit for what I like doing.
0: So many people think of photography or photographers as you know, you click the shutter button and it's a one-dimensional thing. But do you think of yourself? Obviously, you're a photographer, you're a filmmaker, you're you're an artist. Are you also an entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Like so much of what you know, like freelance photography, I'd say, okay, but sixty percent of it is is creating the art but a good 40% is you doing the whole business side of things as well. So you have to, like right. put, you have to put time into meeting people, you have to put time into creating relationships with you know, brands and people working in brands and other photographers and other artists because all of that helps in the long run. So yeah, like art, you know, being an artist is one thing, because at the same time, for, for instance, you can create art without the view of uh, doing it as a job or doing it to earn money, and that's completely fine. But um, if you're looking to be a freelance photographer and earn money from it, then yeah, you have to view it as a business, and um, you have to put as much time into the art as you do into the business side of things in order to at least you know succeed or make enough money to um, live off it.
0: That's right. So I, I'm curious when I see success on social media, however you measure that, you know, you you've got sixty thousand followers on Instagram alone. Does that mean success in business?
1: Well, yeah, you know, these are two very, very different things. So I know of a couple of photographers who um, are very successful in earning money in photography and they're always employed. But if you look at their Instagram or their social media following, they're very small mm. or they have just a couple hundred followers. Whereas I know a couple of photographers who have 60, 70, 80,000 subscribers, but they're not really doing any jobs or projects for a larger brands. So the two fins, I mean, it's a strange one. The two fins aren't completely linked, but by having a large social media following, it can help you get in touch with brands and those brands are going to be a little more um, interested in working with you because they can use your platform as a point to advertise their products off.
0: You have a strong presence on Instagram as, as well as YouTube. Do you find that one platform versus the other
1: helps you secure work? in a in a better way it's an interesting one actually because while instagram i feel used to be a lot more effective and you know used to grow a lot quicker Mm. on instagram for instance but um these days on instagram it's getting harder and harder to to get your work seen by people who don't already follow you whereas with youtube despite having a much smaller following i feel like uh, the reach is so much bigger and even now i receive offers on you know like a weekly basis about advertising a product or looking into a product on my YouTube page, whereas it's a bit slower in that regard on Instagram. So I think just in general, YouTube holds a lot more weight compared to Instagram when it comes to social medias. Aaron, you mentioned networking
0: with clients, reaching out to clients. How do you choose which clients you want to work with? And also I wanted to ask you, is it hard to say no, or was it hard in the early days to say no maybe to brands that you weren't perfectly aligned with?
1: Yeah, that's a really, I think a really important question and becoming more and more important. So obviously when you're starting out, it's very difficult to say no and you pretty much just accept anything mm. which comes your way, even if you're doing stuff for free at a certain point. But these days I find myself saying no to more opportunities, more opportunities than yes. And I just feel like um, there's a thin line between being an influencer and an artist. And if you end up doing just always product work and all you kind of focus your energy on is product work and doing, you know, work for brands, you kind of lose a bit from the artistic side. So I'm always very conscious of um, striking a balance between the two and only working with brands I enjoy using or if it's a brand which kind of aligns itself with how I think or my own style.
0: That's really interesting, though. Isn't the pursuit, though, to grow your business? So you're, you're trying to stay true to yourself and, and shoot the work that you think is going to attract more work, more client work, more paid work, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have to make a living.
1: Yeah, so um, this is where it's tough. So for me, because I, I still have the sports side of things on the side, still bringing me an income, it allows me a bit more freedom in that sense where I don't have to be fully reliant on bringing freelance work in. And secondly, and this is part of the reason why I'm going more and more into YouTube, it offers another revenue stream and a revenue stream which is fully dependent on myself and not dependent on doing work for others. So as time goes on, and it's going to be the same with um, NFTs, which are you know, I was talking about these days, but um, it mm. offers more and more opportunities for artists to make money out of their work directly rather than always relying on an email coming from a large brand telling them, you know, you have this opportunity to do this project. and Just in general, you never want to be too reliant on freelance work because you can get it one month, maybe you get two free projects one month, and then you go six months with nothing. Like it really is out of your hands. And it's very tough to run a business where all your income is pretty much out of your hands in that respect.
0: Can you share an example of a current project or a current client engagement?
1: So at the moment, I'm working with Hilton, they have a hotel in uh, central London, and I'm doing some um, architectural and uh, product photography with them. And also, I have a project with um, a camera company, and I cannot disclose the name or the camera due to an NDA. But um, those of you who subscribed on YouTube will see what I'm working on very soon.
0: Cool. When you're out on the streets shooting for yourself,
1: Do you shoot with friends? Do you shoot by yourself? What does that look like? Well, they're two very different things for me. So I do really enjoy going out with friends and shooting and just socializing and, you know, at the same time you're bouncing new ideas across and you're learning new things. So that's really cool. But at the same time, when it comes to actually shooting with the view of creating good and important art, then I go alone Mm. because I need to be 100% focused on uh, the streets, if I'm doing street photography, on the people, the surroundings. And I feel like if I go with somebody else, my attention is always being split between shooting and talking to whoever I'm there with. So even when I'm doing street photography alone, I turn off my music, there's no headphones. I'm just fully, fully just hyper-focused on my surroundings and what's going on.
0: It's an interesting question from Instagram here, Aaron. I feel cool areas to shoot are ghetto (laughs) slash dangerous. And nicer areas are mundane/slash
1: bland. How do you deal with this? 100% agree. I mean, here in Battersea, South London, we're experiencing the very same thing, where areas are being transformed, gentrified, and they're they're losing their character. And the people are changing, the architecture changing, and it's just becoming less and less interesting. And I feel like really modern cities just lack that character, which you get with those, uh, you know, it's more gritty kind of neighborhoods, or you know, it's been just Random things like graffiti on the wall, it just adds a lot of color to a shot. Whereas if you're just shooting a modern building, which is glass and metal, there's not really that much contrast there, or there's not that much color there to make it interesting. So I do definitely agree with that point. I always prefer shooting in more gritty, run-down neighborhoods than you know, like the city of London here.
0: Aaron, I know when you were young, you've talked about how important Turkey was in terms of helping shape who you are. But your parents also took in Japanese transfer students and that impacted you as well. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so ever since I was in primary school, we'd always have students come into the the house to stay and they would go to university here, mostly at the SOAS University, but most of the students were Japanese. So while I was growing up, I was always getting snippets of Japanese culture, be it some Japanese snacks. Or the technology that was coming over from there. Or it would be like um, one of the students would cook food. So one memory I have is one of the students came over and they made their sushi. And it was the first time I'd ever tried sushi. And it's just those little things yeah. like that while I was growing up, I think, really gave me an interest in uh, Japanese culture. And it's why I always dreamed of going to Japan. So once we had the um, opportunity to do so, I got in contact with a friend and we headed out there. And we actually ended up um, meeting some of the students, which stayed at my house, which was really cool.
0: That is extremely cool. I mean, your mom and dad being open to experiences Mm. like that really created that that intrigue and the mystique of of Japan that you, you know, dreamed of going one day. When you think about landing in Japan for the first time, I mean, do you remember you've been there several times now? But do you remember actually landing for the first time and like
1: starting to take it in? Yeah, I'll never forget that moment. So 11 hour flight into Tokyo. Um, I took a train, just like a direct train from uh, the airport directly into city center. So after I got off in the city center, which is Shinjuku, I'm in the train station. And despite coming from London, which I thought was a busy city, seeing that many people move around in the station it just it kind of blew my mind like to see that many people be that crowded that you know so much movement going along so it's just a full-on assault on your senses there's lights, sounds people and um it was just it was like landing on a new planet almost i'd never experienced anything like it
0: wow especially at night just the neon city right come to life <laughs> that's amazing exactly but this is, this is before trope was a part of your life. This was before there was a concept for the book. This was just you having the desire to travel and, and then capture that in the early days. When you think about trying to just share those stories, look what, look what that's become. This was just a pursuit that you had individually. And now here we are a matter of years later, you know, having a book to, to come out of it. What do you think the lesson is in terms of putting yourself out there jumping in with both feet? I mean, not, not every finish line is <laughs> going to end with a book, I completely understand that. What, what, what do you take away from it thinking
1: of thinking back to five years ago? Thinking them like the whole photography journey, it just gives me immense confidence in if I was like in what I do and anything I do in the future and I say that because When I started photography, I had no idea. I knew knew nobody who was a photographer. I knew nothing about photography. And a couple years down the line, I released a book. So it just kind of serves as a real reminder to myself that just by really pursuing something, putting my energy towards it, that I can achieve it.
0: It's very cool. How did you collaborate with Trope and, and work together?
1: So it's funny actually. Trope actually found me through Instagram. And um, it was one of those random emails I got a couple of years back. And it just said, we're making this London book and you wanna be involved in it. And the first one I thought was, this isn't real. This is like a spam email or something. And I had to read it two or three times <laughs> to uh, really get it yeah. through. And um, yeah, after working with Trope on the London book, we kind of began talking about doing a solo book and um, kind of the, we were bouncing ideas here and there. And I was really, interested in creating a book about Japan, which didn't only focus on Tokyo and Kyoto. So normally when people go to Japan, they do the classic, they spend a few days in Tokyo and they go to Kyoto to see kind of the new and the old. And um, there's so much more to Japan. And it's the kind of why we came with the concept of across Japan and it's kind of to to show the other areas, the less seen areas of Japan.
0: I'm thinking though, at the beginning of your discussions Hmm. with us, There's hundreds, thousands of images, maybe to be able to to land here. I mean, how many photos did you go through to review in the process of, of curating the images that are
1: in the book? Well, I'm not exaggerating. There was about 800 images submitted and then we got it down to 150, 180. So, um, I think that was the hardest part of the whole process was, uh, deciding on which photos went into the book. Because it's not just about the best photos, or the best looking ones. It's also about telling the story and um, continuing the narrative throughout the book. So lots of the uh, photos have to be about the journey and also about, you know, capturing small parts of the journey and small elements and capturing stories here and there. So, yeah, that was the most time consuming part of the whole process. It was 800 photos in and then deciding and getting it down and down and down. And um, yeah, decided on the final count. Well, let's jump in and take a look, man. let do it.
0: Starting on page two is a very moody, <clears throat> kind of foggy image here.
1: Where is this? So this is in, um, in Tokyo. And um, it's funny actually, because throughout my time in Tokyo, I was really hoping for it to be a bit more cloudy because that kind of suits the type of photography I like doing. And uh, the day I, I was leaving, the very morning, so this was shot at about two, um, about 4am or 5am, the day I was leaving, I headed out the hotel room and I just saw the weather, it was raining, it was moody, the conditions were just perfect, so I left my suitcase at the hotel, I told the receptionist to um, just look out for them for a couple of minutes and I'll be back, and I spent an hour just going around the city one last time and capturing some shots, <laughs> so I was there to the very last moment shooting, which was always fun.
0: That's amazing. On the day you're actually traveling back to London, you're like, it's not enough. I need to go out one last time. And look what you did. You ended up with one of the opening images of the book.
1: Yeah, it's a funny one, right? It's like uh, one of my favorite images from the trip was shot in the very last moment of it. Which
0: <laughs> It's amazing. Aaron, on page 11. Yes. So there's a series of images here with this famous intersection and look down here. Page 11, page 24, Mm -hmm. 26 and 27. Where is this vantage point in Tokyo?
1: So this is um, the Shibuya crossing, which is one of the most busy pedestrian crossings in the world. And it was one of the few places which I'd seen and watched videos about prior to going to Japan. So on my first day when I headed into um, Tokyo, I went to uh, the Shibuya crossing and I just spent just hours, just walking around it, taking photos of the location. And um, the shots here were actually taken from, there's a shopping center and they have a viewing platform on top. And there's there's mm. actually two or three viewing platforms which have now been built. So the uh, the businesses there are obviously cutting in on to Instagram and um, people wanting interesting viewpoints. So now we're seeing lots and lots of these kind of vantage points going up in cities, not just in Tokyo, but I believe there's one, a new one in New York that's opened up and um, I feel like it's just a trend which is going to keep on going.
0: But you're searching out, so you stayed for hours. You're at you're mm. at the street level, you're at yeah. the viewing platform level. Just finding different light, different combinations of people traversing the streets there.
1: Yeah, like for me, I'm always looking to capture familiar locations from a different or kind of unique vantage point. So um, the shots from up here, for, for instance, most people were using wide angle lenses. I took the decision to use a zoom lens. So I can really focus in on the people walking past. And with this shot here on um, page 11, the lighting conditions were just perfect. We had that nice diagonal light just cutting through the city and it created these really interesting stark um, shadows of the people. So when I saw it, yeah, I just whipped out the uh, zoom lens, put it on front of my camera, got in as close as I possibly could from, um, so yeah, I'm like on top of a skyscraper here when I'm shooting this shot. And um, it's just about, capturing um, the movement of the city.
0: No kidding, but it's it's really graphic too, right? With all the lines coming through. I love that shot. Mm. Page 38, Aaron. One of the most famous places in the world, Mount Fuji. Tell me about seeing it. You clearly had studied and you knew you were gonna go there in advance. You've seen hundreds of pictures, but then to see it with your
1: own eyes for the first time. What yeah do you remember about that you know um, it's one of those things where a photo is it's really hard to capture the almost the magic of mount fuji with a photo or even a film and the first time i actually saw it i was sat on the um on the plane heading into tokyo and i looked out the window and i just saw mount fuji poking his head above the clouds which was just an incredible sight and i really wasn't expecting that but i um, seeing it in person it's it's very strange because normally when you see mountains or you see mountain, they're normally surrounded by mountains. So there's normally a range which uh, surrounds the mountain. Whereas Mount Fuji just stands mm. perfectly formed on its own. And it's what really gives it that kind of magic, mystical quality. Just the way it's just freestanding, there's no mountains around it, you just have nice lakes around it and um, there really is like a mystical quality to it. It's, it's a strange one because at the same time, it's something so dangerous. It's a volcano at the end of the day, and it's still active, but it's uh, just immensely beautiful at the same time.
0: I'm looking at all these different vantage points from Mount Fuji, and I'm struck by on page 45. It's amazing. Yep. So you're in, where are you here again?
1: What's the name of the town? So this one here is from a town called Fujiyoshida. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Apologies if I'm not. But um, it's a small town just based on the foot of Mount Fuji. And um, it's one of these places where you can get the uh, Mount Fuji in the um, frame by like shops and roads.
0: On pages 58 and 59, we're moving to Kyoto. Mm-hmm. And this is the first images in the book that are quite different and just very just beautiful, serene, peaceful. This is a, a bamboo forest outside of Kyoto.
1: Exactly, yeah, so um one of the main things you kind of that hits you when you leave Tokyo and you go to even around Mount Fuji then on to Tokyo um, then on to Kyoto it's just how green and how much nature there is about, so in Kyoto hmm. here, this is a bamboo forest just on the outskirts of Kyoto, and um, actually, the first time I went here, it was around um, twelve and it was absolutely packed and it was at a point where you would struggle to walk around. So the next morning, I woke up at 5 a.m., headed there, head over to um, the bamboo forest, and I was able to capture these shots where it was completely empty. And it's just one of those things where you kind of have to go the extra mile sometimes in photography to get the shot you want. On the next page,
0: Aaron, page 60 is a very meaningful photograph in your journey. Mm-hmm. This is a location that you actually researched and saw in advance. And one of the reasons that you did want to have
1: a really good camera with you. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So before my first trip to Japan, I was walking around um, around Camden and there was a gallery there. And in the gallery, there was this big, big photo of um, this temple, which is called Fushuni Inari. And um, when I saw that, I don't know, it kind of just little light bulb in my head, and I just felt the need to have a camera to capture that kind of scene. And um, so once I got to Kyoto, I, again, I had to hit here in the early morning because if you go here around noon, it's just packed with people. So this shot here, I was here around 6 a.m., 7 a.m., and I was just taking shots of the temple and the gates. And while I was shooting, I heard the sound of um, some wooden clogs hitting the floor. So I was kind of confused about it. I didn't know what was going on exactly at the time. So I look back, and um, this uh, gentleman here—I think he's a priest in this temple at this shrine—and he just walked past me. And um, it was just one of those moments where, right time, right place. He was perfectly framed. He was walking right in the middle, and uh, yeah, I just took the shot. And. It's, again, it's kind of one of those moments where you shoot it and you know instantly that you've got a good shot. And it's one of the best moments of photography, really. Moving to
0: pages 26 and 27, Aaron. This is an amazing contrast just in this one spread. All the people and chaos of the terminal on the left side and on the right side. It just feels like a very reverent moment.
1: Yeah, it's, um, it's something which I always like finding in in cities in general. So even here in London where you can be in a really densely populated area like a station and you just go a few streets down the road and you're you know you'll be the only person there. Even in a city like Tokyo where it's so densely populated, mm. you can just go one stop down on the train or walk a few streets down and uh, you'll just find spots like here as we see on page 27 where This temple, where it was completely peaceful. I think I was there for around 40 minutes, and maybe two people came in all that time. And it's such a stark contrast between, you know, like the Tokyo we know and the craziness of it. But at the same time, in that very same city, just, um, you know, a stop or two down the line, five minutes down the line, you can find places of complete silence and complete peace.
0: And when you're shooting at a temple, And you're trying to let your subject have their moment of peace. And you're just trying to kind of keep a low profile too, right? Not interrupt their moment. What, what are you feeling when you're shooting a scene like that?
1: Now that's exactly it. So for instance, with this scene here, I shot it with um, a a telephoto lens actually. So I was quite a way back when I shot this shot, Mm. but, um, especially when you're shooting people praying and they're in their own moment of peace, The last thing you want to do is rock up with your camera and start disturbing them and annoying them and taking them out of whatever they're doing that day. So it's another instance where in a location like this, I'm doing my utmost to not disturb the person while also capturing what they're doing and um, almost telling the story of what they're doing that day as well.
0: On the next couple pages, Aaron, you've got some great pictures here. And I'm curious the differences between Osaka and Tokyo
1: so um, in Japan they actually refer to Osaka as the messy city and That's because compared to Tokyo. It's a little little bit more rough around the edges a bit more gritty and I actually enjoyed that I like that a lot and um, Mm. In general Osaka is a very much more laid-back city compared to Tokyo So Tokyo is a lot more professional. Everyone's doing their 9 to 5. Everyone's in the same suit and uh, tie Whereas Osaka, things are a bit more laid back, there's better food, which is always great.
0: As we move on over to page 74, Aaron, we're entering a new chapter, Yakashima Island. You're definitely off the beaten path here. You've chosen to go to, from what I know, is a smaller island in the south of Japan. Why did you choose to go here, and how did you get there?
1: So. This was actually quite a random trip we made. And um, I was in Kagoshima, which is a small city in the south of Japan. And uh, while I was there, I'd heard about this um, island called Yakushima. It was a place which inspired a Japanese anime called Princess Mononoke, which I watched when I was a child. There was this island there, which there was, which I could explore. So one morning, it was like, again, early morning, six, seven a.m. I headed down to the port and there was just a crazy storm at sea and they weren't sure if the boats were going that day so after waiting around for around half an hour they decided uh, the boats were going to go and uh, we yeah it was like a hour long trip from kagoshima to yakushima but oh it was very bumpy the waves were crazy there was a storm going on so it wasn't the most comfortable trip to get there but i feel like it was worth it in the end
0: but the journey itself i mean this is what you have to do, right? Of course, you're going to Tokyo, you're going to Osaka, you're going to Kyoto. But places like this, I'm not saying it's more special, but it adds to the texture and the character and the depth of your trip. I mean, you're telling stories like you were there yesterday.
1: Yeah, 100%. It's like trips like this to Yakushima, these are the ones that really stick with me and the ones I really enjoy doing. Because when I was traveling here, it really does give me that sense of excitement of going somewhere new that real um i don't know feels like a real adventure when you're going on a trip like that compared to when you going to tokyo or to osaka
0: and you're also introducing the audience to i'm sure many people have never heard of this place you introduced it to me did you feel a different sense of responsibility like you're kind of sharing an island not not that it's never been photographed but you're sharing an island in a book and bringing a perspective that is very new did you did you feel a sense of that either a responsibility to the people or to the place when you were there
1: yeah hundred percent i have like um i had more of as you said maybe like a responsibility to tell the story of the trip tell the story of the little details while i was there not just the, the shots of the forest and the you know the classic you know waterfalls and stuff like this i really wanted to capture mm-hmm. the people who were also walking around capturing the little details of um I don't know like the plants which were there for example on page 80 the uh, shot of when i'm in the taxi so shots like that it's it's, um, it's almost like a diary entry or one for my memory where i can take that shot and just by looking at it the entire story of the day it's a spark in my mind once again so for sure when you go to places like this it's more there's more of a focus on telling the story of the journey and really capturing the trip as a whole and it's funny because When I got back to uh, Tokyo, hardly anyone from Japan had even been to uh, Yakushima or these kind of more remote areas of Japan. So they were equally interested in the areas I had visited. Wow, that's very cool.
0: Thank you for going there. Thank you for sharing those images. Uh, They're great. On pages 94, 95, and 96, this was quite a momentous day here. This was a surprise, right? I mean, you, you didn't know that this was coming.
1: So, yeah, the day we got to Ise, which is um, a city in Wakayama Prefecture, it was the day where the new emperor in Japan ascended to the throne. So the day the new emperor ascends to the throne is also the start of a new era in Japan. Now, I didn't realize this, but when I traveled to Ise. It actually turned out to be home to one of the most sacred shrines in Japan. So people from all over the country traveled into Issei on the same day I was there. But it was just really interesting to see, to really um, capture that day and capture the people kind of celebrating that moment and traveling across the, um, the nation to be there pretty much.
0: Wow. I mean, you, you were there as the dawn of a new era in Japan. It's moments like that, I guess, where you feel lucky or you're very grateful to have had your camera to say that you have pictures from that day. I mean, that's, you're you're photographing history.
1: 100%. It's like, they're the moments which make uh, travel photography just really feel good. And I just feel it was almost my duty to kind of capture what was going on. It's really cool to be part of it.
0: Aaron, there's a beautiful spread on pages 98 and 99. Where is this vantage point? And is this another, is this another shrine?
1: So this is actually in Issei as well, quite near to where all the celebrations were going on. So this Mm. actually is one of my favorite images from all of my trips to Japan. And um, it was a funny one because I saw the the composition and um, at that moment, I realized that I needed a tripod, I needed an ND filter, but I had none of those on me. And it was a half an hour walk back to the car, which had all the gear. So um, yeah, I decided oh, wow. to make the walk back, get the gear, and uh, trek it back to uh, this spot to take the shot. And normally, when you do, when you do uh, go through such an effort to take a photo, it normally ends up as a disaster. But this was one of the few moments, <laughs> the few times where, <laughs> The effort pulling did result in a good shot, and um, it's really interesting, actually. So the rocks in the middle are—they're um, a shrine, and the rope from the big one mm. to the little one—it represents the—it um, represents the division between the spiritual world and the real world. And the people on the side here, on the right, they were also the people who travelled into this uh, city to uh, celebrate the dawn of a new era, and they come to that corner there to pray and to pay their respects also
0: it's amazing how the weather impacts this image and gives it such just a serene it feels it feels very important it's not just a sunny (laughs) beautiful day that feels like a postcard right I mean for me it has such
1: character and personality to it yeah I mean for me the worse the weather the better the photos and um, when it's raining like this I just I really like capturing that kind of mood and I actually prefer shooting on days like this than to be shooting on sunny days or on overcast days.
0: Moving to Fukushima on starting on page 108. Gosh, these images are just gorgeous. Again, just new terrain that we haven't seen yet with the beautiful lakes and, and mountain ranges. Where are you here? Aaron?
1: So um, this is in Fukushima and uh, prior to going to Fukushima, I didn't really know anything about this area other than the earthquake which took place here, so um, I didn't know what to expect when I headed up here, and uh, I was just amazed by the landscape. And to be honest, it ended up being one of my favorite areas of Japan.
0: And really? uh, yeah,
1: so the shots you're seeing here, they're of this area called Five Lakes, which formed after a volcano erupted, and due to the minerals and the water and whatnot. The colours of the ponds are really vibrant and the different kind of blues. And you see the trees are like mm. really vibrant colors, like the oranges and stuff. So it's just an absolutely beautiful place and the landscapes are just absolutely incredible. And again, as I said earlier in this interview, it's like when you come to a location like this, you become a landscape photographer, whether you like it or not. Like you can't not capture <laughs> what's going on here, right? So it's what right. yeah. So the landscape shaping the photographer, or the landscape shaping the art. So when I was up here in Fukushima, I was in full landscape mode. I was capturing the mountains, the trees, the ponds, and I loved it. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, you 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 can showcase what every location gives you, right? Aaron, thank you for taking us across Japan. Loved loved the pictures, loved the stories, and the journey that you took us on. I'm curious with your ability as a, as a professional photographer, you've added filmmaking and you're really good on the motion side as well. How difficult or how easy perhaps was it for you to go from stills into motion?
1: For me, it was almost a natural transition because once I made the transition to trying to tell stories through my photography, the next logical step was to create videos which also told those stories. There's just a very different medium and with film you can really get deep into subjects and for instance if you're doing documentary work you can really delve deep into a subject or a person and that's the kind of stuff I really am interested in uh, looking more and more into.
0: Well lots of success so far and certainly more to come we'll be watching. Congratulations on Across Japan. This is really a celebration of your work and we look forward to seeing more from you on the still side, on the motion side. In the meantime, until we can see each other and connect and shoot together in London, from our Trope family to you and your family, we wish you all the best,
1: man. I can only thank Trope because they gave me this opportunity to make the book and I'm just so grateful. And the support I received along the way because I've never created a book. I never even thought about creating a book. And I feel like, You know, you guys at Trope have really helped me take that next step in my photography career. So just really grateful to have gotten this opportunity.
0: It's our pleasure, man. It's a beautiful book. Again, congratulations, and we'll see you soon. Thank you. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Aaron Serrigal, who can be found on Instagram. You can subscribe to Trope Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Trope Reader, find us at trope.com, or on YouTube at Trope Publishing Co., where you can see the video version of this interview. This episode was executive produced by Sam Landers and Terry Mayday, Cameron Audio, Oscar Ayella, production engineer Jeremy Garko, editorial Mayday Productions, music by Universal Production Music, location footage directed by Terry Mayday. Trope Publishing Company is a platform for creators, storytellers, and imaginative business minds creative director Scott Anzi, producer Lindy Sinclair, designer Jack Bamboom Boom, and marketing by Hannah Kopach. You've been listening to Trope Stories.